Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 38 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are free and always open to all, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary of Westminster Church for upcoming events. Information can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Clint Watts is a former FBI agent with expertise in electronic espionage, misinformation campaigns, fake news, and the manipulation of social media. In 2017 and 2018, he testified before four Senate committees on Russia's information warfare campaign leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. In addition to his service with the FBI, he has served as an Army Infantry Officer, an Executive Officer for the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, and a Counterterrorism Analyst for the U.S. Intelligence Community and the U.S. Special Operations Command. His new book and the topic of today's presentation is Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. If you purchase the book, be sure to look for his photo on the dust jacket. You'll find him there in a t-shirt emblazoned with the words, Dance Like Russia Isn't Watching. <laughs> and today he'll show us just how to do that. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Clint Watts. Thank you. So this has to be one of the nicest places I've ever presented. I, I can tell you, I used to be a trainer for the FBI, and it is the worst facilities you've ever seen when we would go out, and this uh, knocks it out of the park. And, and to speak of that T-shirt, uh, what is interesting about it, as you might know, is that I actually got that before I testified to the Senate because Facebook offered it to me, probably because they knew I was talking about Russia a lot on my social media account. Which is interesting, right? <laughs> so uh, it, it, the marketing word, because I didn't, what did I do? I went and bought the t-shirt. So uh, thanks for uh, coming out today. And uh, this, is an, uh, this is an amazingly positive thing. I will talk about a lot of negative things, but at the end, uh, I'll try and make sure I come back to some positive. That this many people showed up in one place and are not staring at their cell phones is a major accomplishment <laughs> in the modern area, especially Especially those two crowds in the upper deck. I know you're going to get the shakes in about 15 minutes <laughs> without that cell phone, so it'll be all right. I, I'll go quickly. I'll go quickly. So I don't know if you've heard, but Russia interfered in our election. So um, for about two years, I wanted to talk about it, and no one wanted to listen. In the last two years, I've gotten tired of talking about it, and that's all anyone wants to talk about. And I will mention it today, but I also want to talk about the bigger picture, uh, because I think that horse has been beaten. And the biggest threat uh, for our democracy isn't Russia, it's America. So we are here today. We are here today, and let's think about how we got here. Uh, the internet was the greatest thing ever. If you remember, when I was a kid, people used to have ham radios, maybe some of you did, and the entire goal was to communicate with someone that was really far away. And you'd see people had a map, and they, they would say, hello, are you out there? Someone maybe another part of the United States or even in another country would say, hello, this is where I'm at, and people would mark that down on the map. That was a big deal, to connect with somebody all the way around the world. Now, we try to not connect with people that we went to high school with <laughs> on Facebook, right? Things have changed in 20 years that's gone that dramatically. And the internet brought everybody together. And it was great. The optimism at the end of the 1990s was, think of everything that could happen, right? 
we have created enormous change from 20 years ago where everyone is connected or can be connected to everyone else in the world in almost a moment's notice. And this has created wonderful things. Yeah, there's a phenomenon known as the long tail where any niche product or, or, or obscure idea could find someone else that wanted that product or wanted to talk about that idea. And that was great. There was tremendous optimism around it. But around the 2000s, something started to change because no one, when they made the internet, said what could go wrong with everybody in the world being connected with everyone else in the world. I am a guy who generally comes to everything negative and then I start to search for the positive. That was my job uh, working either in the army, the FBI, or the intelligence community. And what you saw was there was a group known as extremists and they were called Al-Qaeda. Uh, for those that are familiar or not familiar, uh, that translates to the base. It was a physical base where terrorists from around the world would go to Afghanistan so they could be indoctrinated, they could train, they could plot and plan terrorist attacks. And after 9-11, the doors for them closed on their physical base. War is continuing today in Afghanistan. And where Al-Qaeda went for refuge wasn't on the ground, it was online. We used to talk when I first started uh, uh, in the FBI and later at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point about the virtual caliphate, the safe haven of the internet. And you saw Al-Qaeda go there in droves because they could survive, they could go underground, and they could exist, even to the point where one of the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks today is still alive. No one knows where he's at. How long has it been since 9-11? He is still alive and will still produce videos that will show up online. They were prolific enough at it that their, their most sophisticated affiliate was called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And this is where I'm going to sort of lead into the social media era. Al-Qaeda in Iraq had a guy named Zarqawi. He was dynamic. He was violent. And he was pu putting out videos. His crew would put out videos that showed beheadings, uh, assassinations, roadside bombs. And crowds online went to them in droves. They not only went to those videos online, they went on the ground to Iraq. They wanted to join up with those cadres. And one of the first platforms they went to was a social media platform called YouTube. That was the first time I started studying extremists on social media was YouTube. And that brought an entire group of people, disenfranchised people together. They migrated in droves. And if you fast forward 10 more years, they were the foundation of what started off as the Islamic State of Iraq, which later became known as ISIS and later the Islamic State. And through social media, through that jump from the internet to social media, they not only changed the way we think about terrorism, they created the largest mobilization of terrorists in world history to one battlefield. Luckily, they've been destroyed by an international coalition over the last few years. But what they did do was something that no one else had done. They actually toppled al-Qaeda in the social media space. They changed the ideology. They created an entire new version of extremism. And they did this on nearly every social media application that was out there. They produced slick videos. They would be on Twitter or Facebook. Then they moved to Telegram. They did this in a very sophisticated way. But it was also their undoing for Al-Qaeda. The internet was Al-Qaeda's savior. Social media was Al-Qaeda's demise because everyone could participate. It was populism. And if you remember around this time, there was another populist uprising going on where Facebook saved the world. It was called the Arab Spring. It brought everybody together. If you remember in 2011 and 12, social media was, triumph was triumphed as the solution. It was the democratizing force around the world and dictators fell very, very quickly. And as we know, that uprising has gone fantastic. We now have democracies all around the world. <laughs> did not turn out the way we thought it was going to. What you saw was massive populist uprising, people coming together online and organizing, showing up to protest, but then what happened? There's just sort of a vacuum afterwards, right? And everybody says, what were we so excited about and who's in charge? There was a group that I was watching, which was called ISIS, that turned out really did not always be ISIS, and there were some characters that were in there that my colleagues, Jan Berger, Andrew Weisberg, and I were watching in this extremist storm. And what we found out was Russia saw the Arab Spring, and while they were upset about the instability, they saw opportunity in the uncertainty that was left after this. 
There were a lot of Russian uh, propagandists, influence personnel, uh, people in their military that recognized the power of what they called asymmetric warfare. Uh, uh, influence, a way to bring about massive change by using these information systems and social media. They started to undertake a, a new campaign, but it was an old playbook called Active Measures. It was an influence approach, which they used subversion of democracies. Essentially, we will get in there and we will whittle away at fact versus fiction. We will erode confidence in institutions and elected officials. We'll create doubt at every single turn. And we'll do that by creating compromise. We will take our old techniques of smearing somebody in public, but we'll do that by hacking into personal information, dumping that strategically out into the information environment, creating overt news outlets that are state-sponsored with covert social media personas that look like you, I, and everybody else that they want to communicate with. Russia's disinformation playbook smartly recognized the opportunity in social media because it plays on three biases. If you're on social media, the first thing you want to do is find things that make you feel good and confirm what you already believe. If presented with information that contradicts what you believe, facts that challenge what you want to happen, you will just ignore them, block them, refute them, and seek out that which satisfies what you want. It's natural. But in the virtual world, you can do it without any physical challenge. You can do it right from your phone. The second one is our natural tendency to want information from people that look like us and talk like us. It's called implicit bias, in-group versus out-group. The Russians were very smart. The social media accounts we were watching, they would look like someone from Minnesota or Ohio. Uh, the, you know, the avatars would be those curious flowers or pets. Lots of people's flowers or pets. Or they would be whatever political affiliation you are. And they would go the entire spectrum. Right, left, center, breaking news. All of those things that make you want to click on it. The third thing they, they understood very, very well is that once people get in digital tribes, once they get into cohorts, once they start to bind together... They want to then fight against other cohorts. And even if you disagree with the group, status quo bias sets in. You don't want to lose your online nation, so you will be quiet even when you know something isn't right or you don't believe in it. Sound familiar? So in this new era, everyone is picking their own information. There was a guy named Eli Pariser who came up with the concept uh, many years ago, he, he was way ahead of his time called filter bubbles. Essentially that when you are searching on the internet, when you are using social media on your phone, you are getting a world that is tailored exactly for you, and you are the only person that experiences that world. Right now, we are all experiencing this moment together. As soon as you go on your phone, you're the only one experiencing what you see on your phone, and it is specifically tailored to you. The social media era brought what was called preference bubbles. You are choosing, liking, sharing, retweeting, blocking. You are creating your own preference bubble, specifically designed to make you happy. The algorithm is half the problem. It's just shoveling back to you things that they know that you like. The other part of it, though, is really us. We are the ones that are choosing our bubble. Preference bubbles have three big consequences for democracy, and this is where I'll kind of transition uh, for the Q&A. The first one is called clickbait populism. Clickbait populism is I will say things I think the audience will like, they will then amplify it, and because they amplify me, I then accrue power over time. I don't necessarily have to believe in everything I'm saying, I just know that people will like this, and they won't like other things I might say. So I suppress what I don't think the crowd will like, I elevate what I do think the crowd will like, and then I went over supporters. Once I gain power, I can set the agenda on the rest of the population. Prison reform in the United States. It was something that was talked about for two decades, but didn't really hit the news until Kim Kardashian showed up at the White House. Folks, that is clickbait populism. How many advocates around this country worked to move towards prison reform over the last two decades. Name one of them. Maybe you know one that's a friend, but generally no one else would know that person. But we do know now that Kim Kardashian is a champion of prison reform. 
for at least an hour. <laughs> that is clickbait populism. It hands a lot of power to people who are made through likes, retweets, clicks, and shares, but maybe don't know a whole lot about what they're talking about. The second part of it is social media nationalism. Once you get into your digital tribe, you do not want to leave. Your identity becomes shaped more about the hashtags, your avatar, the pictures you put up, who you identify with, what you identify with, than what you maybe are in actuality. This is a serious issue, particularly for those people in the top deck, because they might spend five or more hours a day in the virtual world rather than the real world. If you're only awake, let's say 15 hours a day, you're spending five of them online and connected. That's, what's, that's an average study. Some, some folks spend six, seven, eight even. Are you in the real world or are you in your virtual world? Are you in this nation, the United States of America, or are you in your social media nation, a tribe which you have more allegiance to? This will fundamentally change how we see ourselves as a country if it continues. The third one is called the death of expertise, which is the belief, and I have stumbled into this myself, that anybody with an internet connection is just as smart as anybody else in the world on every single topic. <laughs> I looked it up on the internet, and it says I'm right and you're wrong. There's a guy named Tom Nichols who wrote a whole book about this. He's exactly right. We have devalued experts to the point where we'll argue with doctors about medical stuff, even though we're not doctors. We'll argue with experts of any field, finance, education, doesn't matter what it is. But then that elevates a lot of people who say what we want to hear to be in charge of things that we need, like good science, good ethics, good governance, good management, most importantly, good leadership. So with that, with those three biases and preference bubbles, I, I think there are a few things that we can talk about in terms of our democracy. When there is no middle, there is no America. Right now, we are more polarized probably at any point uh, in our history as a country, and that's happened dynamically and quickly. You can go look at The Economist. They did an excellent uh, series of write-ups and discussions about this uh, last year where they showed that over the last 10 years as compared to the 10 years before, you're seeing dynamic shifts in terms of engagement. If we don't agree on the facts, we cannot have debate. You cannot craft policies. You cannot have informed discussion. If we only yell at each other, we will not move forward. We will only move back. And I would remind you that if you're a Russian subversive, the goal is na nationalism, not globalism, because if we retreat from the world stage, if we retreat from what we believe in, it leaves ample opportunity for anyone else really to take the space. And they will not be pursuing the values, the beliefs, what we have as a country, the way we started in any way moving forward. It will be a different world that we'll live in. I think the other part that we really need to talk about is what does the future of democracy look like if we all move into our bubbles? Is there one? This has been rapid. Think back 10 years ago to 2008 to 2018. The iPhone is 10 years old. This hadn't even happened. 10 years. That's phenomenally quick in terms of dynamics. We went from Al-Qaeda using YouTube to the Arab Spring to ISIS to Russia and disinfo to now the real threat moving forward will be Americans on social media. The techniques that I saw the Russian disinfo system use are mostly being adopted by political campaigns. Those that have the following three things will be much more successful and the Russians won't be the ones to do it. If you can aggregate people's data and link it together and then correlate it to understand their preferences, you not only will pick the voters, you will pick the, you will pick the actual candidate and the issues that they will support. It's called social inception, social media inception. I, I will create the entire thing that I want to advance and you won't really know that I'm the one behind the scenes doing it. It's already happening. Just last night, I saw an article where Spotify, which is the music service, if you're not familiar with it, is working with Ancestry, which is your heritage. They're going to help give you curated music based on your DNA. <laughs> that Fitbit tracker, if I know when you're excited, when you're not excited, when you're depressed, when you're happy, when you're exercising, when you're busy, I can deliver you just the right advertisement to hit just at the right moment. 
That linkage of data, if you can do it, will be remarkable. Those that have machine learning, artificial intelligence will be able to do this very, very rapidly and very successfully, and you won't even know that it's happening to you. It will feel natural. The other part is chatbots. You've heard a lot about bots. Uh, Americans are obsessed with bots, which are machines that appear like humans. You essentially can't distinguish the conversations. You don't know when you're on your computer or on your cell phone if you're talking to a real person or not. Americans are already struggling to de detect between them. But what if you can have machines talk to each other and you can't tell it's two machines talking to each other? That's even next level. That makes you want to engage in what you think is a real conversation. That's sort of the next level that's going out there. So think about this if you're a political campaign moving forward. You can inundate audiences with this stuff in social media. I worry about three audiences moving forward, and then I want to talk about 2018 and 2020. The three that I worry about, the first one are people that are coming to uh, social media as their primary entry into information. In the third world in particular, they have gone from not having access to even a newspaper to having Facebook. To us, this seems seamless, right? We're just accessing information, and so we kind of understand what can be true and false. But if you are in parts of Africa, like I've been to, they don't Google things, they Facebook them. When you're on Facebook, you are not searching for things. You are, your sources are your family and friends. It is your tribe. It is not necessarily the newspaper or a news source. The filter are people like you that look like you and talk like you. And they're going to deliver you things that they believe in. They're not trying to dupe you. They're trying to bond with you. But that may not give you the best direction about where to go. The second audience that I worry about are those that have been on traditional news sources that then encounter social media and cell phones for the first time. If you want to actually recruit somebody to be a troll for you in a, in a political campaign, I go to Florida. Older Americans, new to cell phones, don't understand necessarily how Facebook and Twitter work, very motivated about politics, and they vote. That is a Russian dream come true if you're a propagandist. <laughs> hey, send this out for me, send this out for me. Send this, isn't this terrible, right? Now, there's been tons of awareness, and this has gotten better. The third audience that I really worry about is that upper deck crew right there. It's apathy. America's terrible, right? Social media is awful. And some of the surveys that have just come out, when Facebook started actually giving out the data, they started saying, you can download your data that we have on you and know what it is. Half of all young users that downloaded their data on Facebook immediately deleted the app. Older people did not. My age and older, they did not. They del some deleted it, but not nearly to the rate that young people did. They are checking out. But what they are checking into is something entirely different. For young people, why engage in democracy? Why engage in debate if it's so nasty? Why would you want to be part of this on any given day? And so they will not be overtaken by the matrix in the upper deck. They will volunteer and enlist in the matrix because it will feel better. They will have spent more time on a digital connection than they will have in a physical connection. This right here, this forum, this is amazing that you actually have people physically together not looking at their phones. I'm not joking. I can tell you how easy it is to influence an audience when I go around America by looking at a street corner to see how many people are looking at their phone versus looking across the street. New York City, it's probably two-thirds of people are down at their phone, about a third going across. D.C. is the same way. The further west I go, the better it gets. Uh, there's a less of a digital connection. There's more of a physical connection. But it varies between places. So that brings me to elections. Russia in 2018 is the big question. And my take on it is Americans like to get really excited about what happened last time and assume that it's going to happen next time. There are three parts to this, hacking, infiltration, and influence. First, you have to hack, and we've seen a little bit of this. Two senators, some opponents to a congressman out in California have been hacked at, but it doesn't seem that there's been a lot of compromising information. In terms of infiltrating audiences to win elections, it's actually much harder to do at a local and state level than at a national level. Much more difficult to do from afar. 
and I haven't seen a significant amount of influence. What I would say about Russia in terms of their influence in America right now is it's overt, it's not covert. They're not doing it online, they're doing it more in person. The strategy is three levels. It's state, party, and people. State to state, let's have a summit. Let, why don't we bring some legislators over? At the party level, hey, we have shared interest in these things. And at a people level, it's an American showing up at a t in a t-shirt at a rally that says, I would rather be Russian than a Democrat. It's having uh, maybe a reality star named Steven Seagal become the ambassador of Russia to come to the United States. We all laugh, but he's a good pick. What was his last television show before he got this role? He was a reality star for a law enforcement show. It was called Lawman, uh, where he went around and he enforced the law. Strong personality. This is not a coincidence. This is overt. This is what they're doing. I don't think it's really what you need to worry about. I think what we need to worry about is Americans. We will experience, and at the end of 2018 into 2020, the fourth major populist uprising uh, in social media that at least I've watched. The first one was the Arab Spring, which toppled dictators, right? And it fell apart because there was no real physical glue on the ground. The second one that I, I, I watched was ISIS overtaking Al-Qaeda. It was jihadi. They all believe in different things, but the phenomenon's the same in the online space, which is the populist overtaking the establishment. Al-Qaeda was essentially overtaken by people that didn't know much about anything in terms of the ideology, but they moved forward aggressively, and they learned from the foreign fighters that were still left over in Iraq. Totally different context that we're seeing is consistently in political movements around the United States right now. No one should have been surprised about what happened in 2016. That was a social media-powered populist movement that had linked with the Tea Party, right? This was a physical group that actually had been participating in activism a long time, very traditional for democracy, and they surprised the GOP establishment. And this is going on, you know, in our own country right now. We're not really sure what the GOP is or what they believe in or not. And the same will happen for the Democrats next. The resistance. The resistance believes in all sorts of things I've never heard a Democrat say. It's an interesting phenomenon, right? And so going into 2020, it will be interesting to see will it be a personality or a party that rises up to essentially be the challenger. If it's two personalities battling it out in 2020, it's gonna be pretty hard to find a middle in America that is not good for democracy. It's better to figure out what you believe in before you figure out who you believe in. If you don't know what you believe in, you will maybe follow the wrong person down the wrong street for the wrong reasons. So I think it's important in our country, in terms of our democracy, that we figure out what we believe in first. And that's really where we're at in this country. Social media is not helping in that capacity. And so with that, I wanted to conclude with some negatives and some positives. We are more polarized than we've ever been. We literally see where, I don't know if you saw in the New York Times, they did a Thanksgiving study after uh, the election in 2016 found that people that were from different voting blocks spent less time together at Thanksgiving. That's not good. That's family and friends being divorced from each other over something they saw on Twitter. Who cares? Right? But we do. It's changing the way we interact with each other. So let's focus on the positive. We have had more activism in this country, probably than at maybe any time in history, at least since the civil rights era, just in the last two years. That's physically people coming together. That you all actually showed up for me, which I find bizarre and remarkable at the same time. <laughs> But that you all actually showed up during the middle of a weekday together of all ages to interact with each other and talk about things is astounding. You can never get this to happen in New York City, by the way. It'd be very difficult to do. One, we don't have spaces this large. But two, it's very hard to get people to physically come together. But there's more activism right now. And so when we think in terms of democracy, if we can put down our phones, or recognize that Twitter and Facebook and all these social media applications are good for cats and kids, not so good for politics, then we'll probably be fine. This, in fact, could be a great period in our history. 
It could help us reestablish what our identity is. It could connect young people who have actually been mobilized about issues in the last two years with older people who have experienced democracy from a different way and bring issues to the forefront. So I'm 50-50, and really the answer about how things go uh, comes up to you. If I could offer any one thing in conclusion before uh, we uh, uh, do some Q&A, it's always make sure to spend more time in the real world than the virtual world. Make sure to spend more time with actual people than someone you met online is just telling you what you want to hear or, or sounds like they're like you. But the chances are when you get to see them in person, you go, this is kind of weird. I don't think we have anything to talk about, right? Anybody done that? Met a social media connection and you get there and you go, I, why, don't, why am I talking to this person? So moderate your usage. There's an app called Moment. Uh, if you use your social media or use your phone, it tells you how much time you spend on your phone every day. I use it. It's a free service. And every time I see that I've spent a little too much time on my phone the, the previous day, I deliberately think, man, I need to be in the real world, not the physical world. Or excuse me, the physical world, not the virtual world. So I actually have optimism around it. We have more candidates run on, on both parties running for office uh, coming up this year. And I imagine... Uh, moving into next year. I think if we can identify and elevate leaders that want to bring us together despite our differences rather than pull us apart for their own gain, this country will be in a good place and this might be a needed inoculation, a small shot to help us identify what we really believe in after maybe we've been a little bit apathetic because life has been really good. So thank you all for having me out here and um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Clint Watts. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from a packed house here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is former FBI agent and cybersecurity expert Clint Watts. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite you to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum three weeks from now on Tuesday, October 16 at noon, when the pediatrician who uncovered the high levels of lead in the water in Flint, Michigan, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, will join us. Visit our website, westminsterforum.org, for further information. And now, Clint Watts, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. That was a rather depressing presentation you made. Thank I, you very much. I finished, I finished upbeat, though, right? Yeah, you, finished, you tried to finish upbeat. Uh, I do that every Sunday, and sometimes it's not, it doesn't always work. <laughs> T tell us... Uh, how do, you, how do you, as a person who does this sort of for a living, how do you distinguish, distinguish between fake news and real news, the, the virtual stuff that comes at us and the other stuff that we read in the media? That, uh, great question. And by the way, if you do uh, read the book, and I hope you will, um, you, you'll see I start off with issuing fake news and then I conclude with falling for fake news. So I, everyone falls for fake news. Anyone that says differently is fake, new, fake news in themselves, okay? So we all get duped or, or fall for things. It's about filters. Uh, ultimately, fake news can proliferate if you choose to make sure that you have no filter or you tailor your filter to be those things I talked about, confirmation bias, implicit bias. There are some things that you can do. One, look at a variety of news sources. Uh, newspapers, magazines, television, radio, they're all filters, but you gotta go to a diverse set. For me, I have a Twitter following list that I look at that's from one side of the spectrum, and I have another one that's from another side of the spectrum. I watch both. Um, I try and read newspapers from different perspectives. And I always tell people, if you get something from online, try to check the fact-checking websites, Snopes, factchecker.com. But also, if you can't identify who the author actually is of what you're reading, 
or where the news outlet you're reading is physically located. One of the things that J.M. Berger, one of my colleagues always talks about, is a, a good way to spot a fake news outlet is you can't figure out where they're at. You physically have no address for them. That's a classic sign uh, of a, a alternative outlet that maybe isn't trying to be who they say they are. If they won't say who they are, then why should you listen to them? Um, so I always tell people to do that. I all, always, as well, try and go to reporting rather than opinion. Uh, one of the things that I've pushed uh, in the book and even before was nutrition labels for information. Essentially, what outlets are giving me reporting rather than opinion? This is important, but do I really know that? It's very diff difficult in the internet age to know who's really focused on opinion, who's really focused on a reporting. That goes for television, radio, whatever that might be. So I try to focus at least on, on the hard news first before I go looking for opinion sites. Uh, you've testified before Congress and in your book and other venues, you've, you've clearly uh, uh, demonstrated, at least uh, to, to your satisfaction, that Russia interfered in our last election. I think that's generally used to how you begin your remarks here, generally known. Uh, the government, Government didn't want to listen, you said, before that election. Now they're seeming to listen a lot, but is there really anything happening to, to uh, prevent the kind of interference in this coming election? Is the government still asleep at the wheel, or are they taking action? Uh, we've had a lot of conferences, by the way. And that, if you know D.C., that's the way to get the ball rolling, is two years of conferences where we talk about the same thing. Uh, it, it should have happened much more aggressively Years ago, uh, this has been obvious. The one that has been most frustrating, I think, is uh, election integrity, your vote, making sure that your vote is real and cannot be hacked or altered. Uh, I, that should have happened within the first three months after 2016. It should have happened before. I'm frustrated that we're not at paper ballot backups or verifiable audit trails on that. But I have to say... <laughs> I. When I testified to the Senate Intel Committee, I will tell you that was one of the uh, more positive moments I've had uh, in terms of watching our democracy, whether inside or out. And I did see bipartisan support and people listening and trying to learn. And, and if you look, uh, uh, Harris and Lankford, two senators on opposite sides of the aisle, put together a pretty good election integrity bill. Uh, I thought it was good. The others have been slow to respond, the other agencies, uh, particularly in terms of interference, and there's no excuse for that. Um, there's even money been allocated for it. I mentioned before that I was uh, initially approached by Republicans when I started talking about this stuff in 2016, um, although if you look online, I'm a Democratic operative shill of some sort, I'm, I'm sure. But, it, it is frustrating, I think, for people in the agencies because no one has put together a plan. This should be the national security staff issuing a comprehensive plan across the whole, all of government with all the agencies having different roles. What you've seen instead is the agencies move forward independently. Uh, FBI Director Ray has said, here is what I am going to do. The NSA Director, here is what I'm going to do. That's good. They know their jobs, but if all the pieces aren't talking to each other, you can get into a really dangerous situation. So I am disappointed and frustrated, and there, it, it is an issue that's so important to Americans as a whole, regardless of your party affiliation. Um, you have to know that when you vote in 2018 that it is real, uh, and they could have done a lot more over the last two years to ensure people of that. I do not think there will be widespread hacking. I, I think everyone's vote will be true, but how confident is the populace in this? Uh, the ultimate goal is to get people to not want to participate in democracy if you're interfering in our country right now. And so I would like to see a lot more leadership and organization from our elected officials on this stuff. And what, what is behind that lack of a cohesive, uh, integrated strategy ac across agencies to really address this matter of election? I am trying to be diplomatic, but there's only one reason. Yeah. <laughs> He, know, he knows uh, why. That, look, you, you can win the election and maybe get help from Russia and still be a good leader and step forward and say, this is critical for our country that the vote is pure, that we are Americans voting for and electing Americans. 
this is not hard to do and it takes an ounce of humility to do that. And so <laughs> there is no reason, uh, I, don't, I don't know any other leader in this country, and I've, I've talked to senators I think that are frustrated, there is no reason not to step forward and say, if it's America first, it's Americans first, and we are doing this for America first, and it doesn't matter what happened in 2016, it will never happen again in 2018 or 2020. So, this is not hard to do. We're talking about election interference. What about other kinds of interference? Hacking into infrastructure, nuclear power plants, electricity, the power grids. How vulnerable is the U.S. to that, do you think? We're getting better, but we are uh, 100 times more vulnerable than everybody else because we're so large and we've become so dependent on the internet for every part of our daily lives. Yeah, it, I, I saw a teenager who lost Wi-Fi connection for 30 seconds and almost had a stroke. <laughs> and so it's hard to uh, be resilient in terms of that expectation that I'm never going to have a period in my life where I don't have a 4G or better connection to the internet. That's, I mean, if Netflix goes down, it's hysteria in this country. <laughs> so part of it is resilience uh, of us as people and understanding it's gonna go down once in a while and we'll be okay. <laughs> we could talk to each other instead. And another part of it is we are surface, in cyber, uh, when I work with financial institutions, we talk about our surface area that we can be attacked is so huge and we are almost infinitely vulnerable uh, in this space. And so I think part of it is, can we withstand it? Yes. Uh, actually, by not having everything linked, we're sometimes more resilient because all the systems don't fall down at once. I do think that our country has gotten a lot better. What I am uncertain about is uh, how the American population will respond if, if we have a bad day. And one of my bosses, who's been my mentor at the FBI and then after, says, uh, you know, we can be ready uh, as institutions, uh, we can be ready as a government for the bad day, but will, you know, people be ready for the bad day? Um, and I'm hoping we can get a little bit tougher in terms of losing our Wi-Fi connection. Uh, question about interference in election, our elections from Russia. Why should we in the U.S. be so troubled when Russia attempts to influence our elections when the U.S. has interfered in politics of any number of countries? Cuba, Iran, Guatemala, Dominican Republic, Nicaragua. Yeah, I, I, the moral equivalency argument consistently comes up. And I, I will offer you two points. One, I've never seen... Uh, any effort in the United States, and I hope it never happens, to hack into hundreds or even thousands of foreign citizens and dump all their private information out on the internet and depose as citizens of that foreign country to get them to not believe in fact versus fiction. I think that is wildly different from what Russia would say that we do, which is voice of America, democracy promotion, human rights, that sort of thing. They see that or they try to equivocate the two of those. I, I see a big difference, uh, at least from my perspective, about trying to promote democracy or journalism or human rights around the world as opposed to hacking me and hundreds of other Americans and trying to dump information on them, uh, destroy their businesses, ruin their lives. So for me, it is not an equivalent. I see a big difference between the two. And in fact, I would tell you if, as Americans, we are kind of in this position now where we're like, well, maybe we won't pursue democracy or promote it around the world. That is a dying position. If you do not defend your values, you do not defend democracy, uh, it will not be there for you in the future. So uh, I don't see them as equivalent, I guess. And I've never seen that in the US government uh, operate in that way. I oftentimes hear references from the 1960s, but we have committees in our country that do oversight and we have made changes in our government um, based on that. And one of the things that I consistently uh, will say when I hear that sort of argument, which is the, the inverse of that argument, which is, well, they're doing it to us. Why don't we just do the same to them? We should never do uh, what the Russians have been doing in terms of interference to us back to any other country around the world, because it is not in line with our values. It is not what we should be representing. It's not what we should be doing uh, around the world as Americans. We should be...
As Americans, we should always be pushing for fact. We should always be advancing the case. We should be doing what no one else does. We are the people that show up after hurricanes or typhoons or earthquakes. We are the ones that put people on the moon. We do these things because we're trying to advance the world. And we are great when people see us be great. We don't have to tell people when we're great. People will see us do amazing things. So I, I think in that point, I, I understand this uh, democracy promotion where we're meddling. I think we're always trying to do it at least for the right reasons, which is if we can make uh, more people, more rights, uh, more freedoms, more civil liberties around the world, the world will be a better place. A number of questions coming up about uh, the current Supreme Court nominee Kavanaugh and the hearings. Do you think yes. Russia is involved somehow around uh, information there? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think uh, the Kremlin right now is like, isn't this just the best? Like, we, <laughs> we, we don't have to do anything at this point. Americans are doing all the tearing down, subverting, uh, destroying of their institutions and, and their experts and their leaders all on their own. I imagine every night, I mean, in, in my bizarro dreams that uh, Putin and his folks sit around and watch a TV and laugh and sip vodka and go, can you believe what's, what the Americans are doing to themselves right now? So I, I, I don't think the Supreme Court is a big thing for them. In terms of social media, they'll always just repeat what the audience is saying, but I don't think they need to nudge at all. I think we'll tear ourselves apart on our own. Uh, as an intelligence analyst and someone who's worked uh, in uh, understanding Russia for a long time, what do you think the end game is for Russia with their interference in our democracy? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And oftentimes uh, the Russia, I'm partly responsible for the Russia awareness, and now I'm trying to sometimes settle down the alarm. Russia has very specific goals. They're not like Americans. We'll just go do a bunch of stuff. They actually come up with a plan and they're very focused. So, and they don't quit at the drop of a hat. You know, one of the things we do as Americans, if quarter two isn't better than quarter one, kill it. You know, if anyone doesn't like it, stop it. Well, they don't operate that way. You know, if they fail, they just keep plugging away. And the, they have very clear goals. One, they want to see the EU and NATO crumble. Those two alliances are what keeps Russia at bay. They cannot overtake those two alliances. But if the alliances crumble, any country, any one country, particularly in Europe, they have enormous leverage over them. The second thing that they really want to see uh, is the U.S. pull back from the world stage so that they can move forward and pursue their foreign policy. So the, the phrase from the Active Measures Playbook, which is the subversion technique, was went through uh, the force of politics rather than the politics of force, which is elect leaders around the world that are sympathetic to your worldview who then pursue Russia's foreign policy on their behalf, either wittingly or unwittingly. So Syria and Ukraine are two big notches for them that they are working on, and they have essentially almost achieved over the last uh, two to three years. Even more than that, they want the world to be in a nationalist, not globalist, perspective. Everybody worry about themselves. If everybody worries about themselves, then Russia can do kind of whatever it wants without any resistance. The last part that you'll consistently hear them push is anti-immigration. It is a, a, a tool that they have used throughout the EU, uh, going back to Syria, and you will even see it in alignment uh, with the U.S. And they've been able to unify an online audience uh, that stretches from Germany, France, U.K., U.S., Canada, and the United States as a cohesive influence effort. And I think that's the greatest success that they've had over the last three to four years. Here's a question from one of the students in the audience, and it, it comes with, you can't see it on the radio, but a wonderful work of art as well on this <laughs> card. Uh, you talked a lot about how our preference bubble affects us how does your preference bubble affect you? Oh, very good question. Have you ever tried to do things differently to change your preference bubble, knowing that you have one? Yes. Um, I've been lucky um, regarding preference bubbles that I was born in the Midwest and was immediately swept off to the military. And at the U.S. Military Academy, uh, you have equal representation of all congressional districts. 
So you get caught up in this storm where everyone is green. You're all wearing the same uniform. You're all from different religions and different places. So I got a little bit lucky in that sense. The other thing I've done uh, to change my preference bubble is largely due to the intelligence training I had in the government, which is there is one fundamental question that's always posed to you when you're doing analysis. How would we know if you're wrong? That's a question that's always posed. And I, I use this with trolls online. Under what circumstances would you admit that you're wrong? If you cannot identify those, then you are in a preference bubble. So I always try and ask myself, okay, I'm, I do a lot of forecasting or prediction, so I think this is going to happen. Then I ask myself, under what conditions, what indicators, what circumstances would, would I know that I was wrong? And if I can't do that, then I know I'm biased. I'm in a bubble. Uh, and the intelligence community does this actually very well inside the government. They'll, they will challenge our analysts and our experts. And, and it's called uh, hedgehog versus the fox. The hedgehog knows but one thing. The fox can do many different things. It's a, an old fable. But if you have a hedgehog come in and say, it's all because of this, you say, what else could it be because of? If they can't identify it, then they're in their bubble, and you should probably just ignore them, and they're one big thing. Uh, so always make sure that... Uh, the only thing you know about tomorrow is it might look a lot like yesterday, but it will definitely not be exactly like yesterday. And so to try and keep an open mind, both with information sources and, and asking yourself those self-checks. Time for one more very quick answer from a student. Who can we trust? Ah. <laughs> hmm. So my grandfather was a commercial fisherman uh, on the Mississippi River, and he would tell you no one. Don't trust anyone. <laughs> um, this is not entirely true. But uh, who can you trust? Look, trust is something that if you don't have it, you don't have anything, right? Trust is about friendships and trust is about family. Trust is about uh, information. And it's part of faith, right? It's a leap of faith. I, I have to bet that someone is going to be as good to me as I am going to be to them. And also recognize that nothing in uh, life is perfect, whether it's a person, a party, a government, whatever it might be. And so I think who can you trust? You can trust everybody, um, but you have to get to know them. And that comes with the physical world rather than the virtual world. I don't trust anybody I ever meet on social media. I can tell you that right now. And I think in terms of trust, the best way to do that is to spend more time in real interactions with people, uh, to bet on people, and even when people break your trust or fail, don't necessarily count them out because oftentimes, sometimes people have a bad day. And if you can put a little more faith on them, uh, they'll have a good day maybe the next day. Thank you, Clint Watts. Appreciate that. Thank you.